0: Welcome to this week's Digest edition of the Herald Scotland, From Friday the 20th to Thursday the 26th of April 2018. Read by volunteers at Cure Review and Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. Coming up in part one. Guide Tackles Violence Against Female Students After Death of Emily Drouet at Aberdeen University.
1: Study. Athletes and footballers may be at greater risk of disease which killed Celtic legend Jimmy Johnston.
2: Mark Meeken given 800 pound fine for hate crime after filming pug giving Nazi salutes.
1: Former SNP MP Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh hires top QC in legal fight.
3: Rape victims who want to testify may face jail. Under controversial policy... SNP
1: consultant who met Cambridge Analytica named as key figure in party's digital operations.
2: More than half of Scots think we would be better off in Europe, poll shows.
1: UK ministers expect talks with SNP over EU withdrawal to go down to the wire.
0: SNP releases email contacts with Cambridge Analytica.
1: Outsourcing giant Capita asks investors for 701 million pounds after losses mount but won't be compared with carillion
0: santander cites carillion collapse as uk profits tumble the herald scotland on thursday the 26th of april 2018 news section Guide Tackles Violence Against Female Students After Death of Emily Drouet at Aberdeen University. This article by Andrew Denham. The mother of a student who killed herself after being assaulted by her boyfriend believes her daughter would still be alive if new safeguards had been in place. Fiona Drouet said a newly published guide for universities and colleges on how to deal with cases of sexual violence would help protect female students and save lives. Mrs. Drouet from Glasgow helped devise the guidance, which is based on the principles set out in the hashtag EmilyTest campaign, founded by the family after daughter Emily took her own life, following an abusive relationship with another student at Aberdeen University. The Equally Safe in Higher Education toolkit recommends guidance and training for staff, well-publicised places to report concerns, and the creation of a code of conduct with disciplinary procedures and sanctions for perpetrators. It also recommends setting up secure data collection to record instances of gender-based violence and research to reveal the extent of the problem. The Scottish Government is providing £396,000 for the rollout and implementation of the guide, which was developed at Strathclyde University with assistance from organisations including Police Scotland, NUS Scotland and the Glasgow and Clyde Ripe Crisis Centre. Speaking at the launch, Mrs Drouet said, This is a significant turning point with regards to gender-based violence on campus. It's a very important day for all Scottish students. This is Emily's legacy, and I hope both staff and students will feel empowered by this resource. Institutions now have the help they need, and I believe that, had this been in place while our daughter was at university, it could have saved her life. There are some pockets of excellence, and some institutions taking this very seriously, but unfortunately it is patchy, and we need to ensure consistency so that every student will get the same level of support. Mrs Drouet said data collection was vital to identify the scale of the issue and said she had been shocked to find such information was not readily available. One argument we have come up against is institutions saying this would make them look as if they had a problem if some reported higher figures than others. What we are trying to do is reverse that culture. The campaign is also seeking to tackle the wider issue of misogyny and laddish culture in higher education. Mrs Drouet said, We want to create an environment where students realise this behaviour is not acceptable on campus. And that there will be serious consequences for them. Dr. Vina O'Halloran, Strathclyde University's secretary, said universities were well placed to take a leading role in tackling gender based violence. She added, We are determined that Scotland has an environment where every student has equal access to help and support, and where university communities tackle gender based violence head on. Emily, eighteen, was found dead in her room in march twenty sixteen. Former boyfriend, Angus Milligan, was later convicted of physically and verbally abusing her and was subsequently expelled from the university. Mrs Drouet and her husband, Germain, have been campaigning against gender-based violence since Emily's death. This article was by Andrew Denham.
1: Study. Athletes and footballers may be at greater risk of disease which killed Celtic legend Jimmy Johnston. An article by Victoria Weldon, reporter published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 24th of April 2018. Intense exercise could increase the risk of developing motor neuron disease, MND, research suggests. People who are the most physically active, such athletes and footballers, could be as much as 26% more likely to go on to suffer from the devastating condition. Celtic and Scotland legend Jimmy Johnston died from the disease in 2006, while former Rangers player Fernando Rickson and ex-Scotland rugby star Doddy Weir also suffer from the condition. The study, published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, found that those whose work involves hard, regular exercise are more at risk, giving credence to concerns sportsmen and Women are particularly vulnerable. The report states this is in line with reports that describe a higher prevalence of patients with MND among former professional athletes. MND, also known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, is an incurable neurodegenerative disease which attacks the nerves in the brain and spinal cord, leading to progressive paralysis, The condition affects up to 5,000 adults in the UK. The researchers compared the lifestyles of 1,557 adults diagnosed with MND in their mid-60s with 2,922 people of a similar age without the condition. They found that while sports stars had a higher chance of increased risk that risk drops significantly to 6% for keep-fit fans who work out regularly in their leisure time. While exercise is unlikely to be the main factor leading to the development of MND, the researchers said it could be important in those genetically predisposed to the disease. They wrote... Overall, physical activity has been demonstrated to be protective against many diseases, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and a variety of cancers. Decreasing the risk of these common conditions may be a trade-off with increasing the risk of a relatively rare disease such as ALS. Commenting on the findings of the observational study, Professor Tara Spiris-Jones from the University of Edinburgh said it did not prove physical activity causes MND and that other factors that increase with physical activity levels could be the cause of the risk. She said, It is important to keep in mind that ALS is a relatively rare disease affecting around 2 in every 100,000 people. And that physical activity protects us from much more common diseases, including Alzheimer's, heart's disease, diabetes and cancer, which together affect more than 10 million people in the UK today. Nick Cole, head of research at the Motor Neuron Disease Association, said the link between exercise and the development of the condition is a very subtle one. He said it does not mean that exercise causes MND. Put in context, it is a small increased risk and one of multiple factors, from genetic to environmental, likely to be needed in a combination to develop MND. Given that exercise has been shown to offer significant protection against many diseases, it would not be advisable to adopt a sedentary lifestyle in order to avoid a very small increased risk of developing MND. The scientists behind the report also cautioned that the link between the two was not conclusive and stressed that exercise has been found to prevent many other diseases. Professor Leonard van den Berg, a neurologist at the University Medical Center in the Netherlands, said... Overall, physical activity has been demonstrated to be protective against many diseases, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes and a variety of cancers. Decreasing the risk of these common conditions may be a trade-off with increasing the risk of a relatively rare disease such as ALS.
0: Here at Q and Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at QnReview.com.
2: This article from the Herald on Monday the 23rd of April 2018. News: Mark Meakin given £800 fine for hate crime after filming pug giving Nazi salutes. This article is unattributed. A man who was convicted of a hate crime after he filmed a pet dog giving Nazi salutes and put the footage on YouTube has been given an £800 fine. Mark Meakin was sentenced after a landmark ruling found him guilty of communicating a video which was grossly offensive. The 30-year-old has been given six months to pay the fine. Meakin was sentenced by Sheriff Derek O'Carroll at Airdrie Sheriff Court on Monday. Meakin taught his girlfriend's pug to react to the words, gas the Jews, and filmed it for his YouTube channel last year. The pug, named Buddha was also seen raising a paw to fascist chant Siegheil during the footage called Mate, your Doug's a Nazi. The stunt provoked outrage after being posted on YouTube which where it has more than three million views. Mechan of Cote Bridge, Lanarkshire, denied any wrongdoing, insisting he had made the video to annoy his girlfriend Suzanne Kelly, twenty nine but he was found guilty under the Communications Act of posting a video which was grossly offensive because it was anti-Semitic and racist and aggravated by religious prejudice. This article is unattributed.
1: Former SNP MP Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh hires top QC in legal fight. An article by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor published in the herald scotland of tuesday the 24th of april 2018 the former snp mp tasmina ahmed sheik has hired one of scotland's top qcs to defend her against a claim of professional misconduct in her previous career Dorothy Bain is acting in a tribunal related to the defunct law firm Hamilton Burns, in which Ms. Anna Jake was a solicitor and partner before entering politics. Ms. Bain led the prosecution of serial killer Peter Tobin in 2007 and was Principal Advocate deputy, the top prosecutorial role in Scotland from 2009 to 2011. A source close to Ms Ahmed Sheikh said Ms Bain's involvement showed the former MP's determination to clear her name and admitted the QC was not cheap. Ms Ahmed Sheikh lost her Ochil and South Berkshire seat last year and now works with Alex Salmond on his Kremlin TV show. The Law Society of Scotland launched an investigation last May into the administration of a trust fund set up like Hamilton Burns. Massamid Sheikh's former partner in the firm, Niall Mickle, was also investigated. After considering a complaint against the pair, the Law Society of Scotland ruled there was sufficient merit to refer it to the Scottish solicitor's disciplinary tribunal. In the most serious cases, the tribunal has the power to strike off lawyers Miss Ahmed Sheikh, aged 47, and Mr Mickle, aged 49, set up Hamilton Burns WS as a partnership in 2001, and it became a limited company in 2014. Miss Ahmed Sheikh left the day-to-day running of the firm after being elected in May 2015, but retained a minority equity stake. The company went into administration last year, owing £600,000, including £210,000 in tax. At a procedural hearing in Edinburgh on Monday, Ms Baines said she became involved in January when proceedings in the case were served. She said she had consulted her client in January, March and April and instructed several areas of inquiry by Ms Ahmed Sheikh's solicitor. However, he had yet to obtain all the relevant material from the Law Society and the administrators of Hamilton Burns. William McCreef for Mr Mickle said his client had examined six boxes of accounting files at the administrators only last week and it would be very time-consuming to track how money went between the general client account and the Mickle Trust account. Mr Mickle was present for the hearing, however Ms Amidshake was not. The tribunal agreed to reconvene for a further procedural hearing on August 17th. A source close to Miss Ahmed Sheikh called the case a stitch-up and said she felt there was no case to answer and the Law Society's own conduct deserved deeper scrutiny. Miss Ahmed Sheikh also felt publicity about the case a few weeks before the general election was partly to blame for her losing her seat to the Tories. The source said it's indicative of the way that she's going to contest this case, that she's got a QC, a very respected QC. She's one of the top, not cheap. She's been a solicitor for almost 25 years. She doesn't want to stop being a solicitor. Basically, she sees this as a huge slur on her reputation. She's absolutely certain it partly contributed to her losing the election. The source said Ms Amitchik was frustrated with her old firm's long administration and wanted to get on with her life, adding, it's basically done her head in.
3: This article from the Herald Scotland, News, on the 26th of April 2018. Rape victims who want to testify may face jail under controversial policy. This article by Stephen Naismith. Rape victims who refuse to give evidence in court might be jailed under controversial circumstances under new guidelines it has emerged after an MSP sought clarification over the new Crown Office policy. Under the controversial measure since March 12th, reluctant complainers in cases of rape or other serious sexual offences can be compelled to testify where prosecution is deemed to be in the public interest. In response to a question from SNP-MSP Christina McKelvey yesterday, Solicitor General Alison DeRolo failed to guarantee that victims of rape would never be sent to prison for failing to give evidence against their alleged attacker. Miss McK- McKelvey had taught assurances that complainers would not face jail over ignoring a witness warrant if one was sought by the Crown. Appearing before MSP yesterday, Ms. The rule said, We can never exclude the possibility that there could be circumstances where a witness warrant might be sought if a complainant refused to attend a court when lawfully cited, whilst we accept that we expect this would and could only arise in the most exceptional circumstances. Last month, Rape Crisis Scotland wrote to the Crown Office saying the policy was causing significant concern and that the policy risked breaching the right of rape survivors and could further reduce confidence in the justice system, costing more rape complainers to retract their statements. Miss DeRoll told MSPs that she and the Lord Advocate had met with Rape Crisis Scotland just week in a bid to offer reassurances and how the policy will work and practice. We confirmed that the focus of the Crown revised policy is not compelling rape complainers to testify,' she said. "'The focus is to ensure that the burden, prosecutional decision-making lies properly with the Crown, and to ensure the decisions are made after the most careful consideration of all the relevant circumstances.' She said the need to issue the witness warrant has not arisen in her decade of prosecuting rape cases in the High Court.' The new Crown Office policy addressed concerns that almost unequally and decisions on whether to prosecute a rapist tend to be dependent largely on whether or not a victim, usually a woman, is willing to give evidence. Prosecutors are concerned that there may be situations, for example, with a particularly dangerous accused, where it is not in the public interest of the interest of justice for this to be the case. The Crown Office says it won't to reshift the balance so that the burden of decision-making rests with the Crown, not the complainer. However, campaigners are concerned that once a witness warrant is issued, the Crown Office has no control over any sanction imposed on a complainer who fails to comply with it, and fear that the ultimate sanction for failing to do so could be a custodial sentence. Miss derollo insists the complainer's views, her interests, and her welfare are at the heart of the Crown's prosecution policy. The focus of the Crown's revised policy is not compelling rape c- complainers to testify, but they declined to say reluctant complainers could never be jailed under the policy. In response to Mr McKee's questions, she added, "'Should that issue ever arise before any decision was taken about the appropriateness of seeking a warrant in the first place, very careful consideration and assessment would be given by an experienced prosecutor.' to all the relevant factors in that case. She added, we will take careful account of the risks of not proceeding against a particularly dangerous accused, but the complainer's views, her interests, and her welfare are at the heart of the Crown's policy in relation to reluctant complainers. Sandy Brindley, Rape Crisis Scotland coordinator, said the charity continued to have significant concerns. Alison DeRollo said, we have never seen a warrant issued but that is because until March the 12th, the policy was not to compel witnesses to give evidence. She said, ''They have reassured us this would only be used in exceptional circumstances, but for any rape complainer facing the possibility of this, it is difficult to see that it is a reassurance. The Crown were also unable to reassure us someone isn't potentially going to face jail in these circumstances. For someone to have the courage to report a rape,'' and then face the possibility, even if remote, that the fact that jail is very concerning. In 20 years, working for rape crisis, I have never spoken to anyone who has felt the burden of decision-making. It doesn't feel like a choice. If they get to the point where they can't continue, it is because the impact on their mental health is too great. We also think it is pointless to cause this distress to complainers as the Crown... Will never give the evidence it needs to get a conviction under such circumstances. This article by Stephen
0: Naismith. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8 and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for cue and review. Now, back to the main programme.
1: SNP consultant who met Cambridge Analytica named as key figure in party's digital operations an article by Tom Gordon Scottish political editor published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the twenty fourth of April twenty eighteen The external consultant who met the data firm Cambridge Analytica on behalf of the SNP was a key figure in the party's digital operations it has emerged. Kirk J. Torrance heard a general sales pitch from Cambridge Analytica CA as a courtesy while in in London on other business in early 2016 after the firm had pushed to meet the party. Mr. Torrance was the SNP's new media strategist from 2009 to 2011, then helped the election efforts through his company, Industrial New Media, from 2011 to 2016. He confirmed his role to the Herald after being named by the Common Space website, The SNP has taken flack for a week over the meeting after former CA Director Brittany Kaiser told a Westminster committee the firm had met the party. The revelation blindsided SNP MPs who had been demanding other parties detail their contacts with CA, which is linked to a privacy breach affecting 87 million Facebook users. Only after Ms Kaiser's evidence did the SNP issue a statement. The SNP has never worked with Cambridge Analytica. An external consultant had one meeting in London. Nicola Sturgeon said the SNP had shown complete transparency but refused to name the consultant when pressed by Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson last week. The minister said she did not want to name someone blameless and start a witch hunt. Mr. Torrance told the Herald, I'd like to commend the SNP for their professionalism and decency in respecting my confidence as a consultant contractor. However, I can confirm that I met Cambridge Analytica on the 18th of February 2016 on behalf of the SNP. My recommendation was not to touch the firm with a barge pole as they were a bunch of cowboys. From what is known now about CA, I am glad the SNP took my advice. Mr. Torrance, age 37, has been a linchpin of SNP online campaigning for many years. His online CV says he was part of the core strategy team for the SNP before the 2011 election and, quotes, orchestrated the most advanced social media campaign since Obama 2008, end of quotation. He said industrial new media successes included helping the SNP win 56 of 59 seats at Westminster in 2015, then win another historic success at Holyrood in 2016. In early 2016, Mr. Torrance's SNP email address was the contact in a party job advert for a computer programmer to work on a new phase of our ambitious digital strategy. Public records show the SNP paid industrial new media £17,500 between June and August 2016 in three monthly retainer fees for strategic and new media advisory services and work on the SNP infrastructure project. The industrial new media website was recently mothballed. However, an archive copy includes a testimonial from SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrow, who said the firm's services had propelled the SNP forward and been of huge value. We enjoy a great relationship with INM. Labour MSP Neil Finlay said... Now it's been revealed former SNP digital guru Kirk Torrance met CA on the party's behalf, it is time for the SNP to come clean on this whole murky affair. There has been no transparency around this, despite what Nicholas Sturgeon might claim. The SNP now needs to disclose any documentation around these meetings between Mr Torrance and C.A., including what campaign they related to, who commissioned Mr Torrance and which politician, if any, had oversight of his work and his report. The SNP declined to go beyond Surgeon's comments to MSPs last week.
2: This article from the Herald on Monday the 23rd of April 2018 Politics More than half of Scots think we would be better off in Europe, poll shows. This article by Alistair Grant More than half of Scots think the country would be better off in Europe, with a clear majority backing membership of the EU single market. Scots are considerably more pro-EU than the UK overall, with even 1 in 10 Leave voters saying they would now change their vote. A major new Brexit survey of almost 17,000 readers of Johnson Press, NewsQuest, which owns the Herald and Trinity Mirror websites in Scotland, shows 64% believe Britain would be better off economically inside Europe. This compares to just 52% across the UK. Those in the North East, Yorkshire and the Humber and the East Midlands were the most likely to say Britain will be better off outside the EU at 40% each. Figures also reveal most people are unhappy with the status of Brexit negotiations, including half of all Leave voters in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Those aged 65 and over are the most likely to be pleased with progress. However, most of those surveyed said they would still stick with how they voted with 89% of people who said they voted in the referendum insisting they would vote the same way as last time if another poll was held next week. In Scotland, 11% of Leave voters said they would change their vote compared to 5% of Remain voters. Overall, Leave voters were twice as likely to say they would change their vote 8% compared to Remain voters 4%. The survey also asked 8,200 readers of Johnston Press and Trinity Mirror sites in Northern Ireland about customs control at the border with the Republic of Ireland, with 67% saying they would not be acceptable. Among Leave voters, 53% said customs controls would be acceptable, with 34% saying they would not be acceptable, while 85% of Remain voters said such controls would be unacceptable. The study, run in partnership with Google Surveys, was completed online by 216,800 people who visited the website. Johnson Press is the publisher of the Scotsman newspaper, while Trinity Mirror publishes the daily record. All three companies also own a range of local titles. This article by Alistair Grant.
1: UK ministers expect talks with SNP over EU withdrawal to go down to the wire. An article by Michael Settle, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday, the 24th of April, 2018. Hopes have been raised in Whitehall that Theresa May and Nicholas Sturgeon are on the brink of a deal over the Conservatives' flagship EU withdrawal bill. However... The Scottish Government still appears to have concerns over what have been described as further reassurances made by the UK Government, which means the next few hours could be crucial in reaching an agreement or seeing the UK plunged into a constitutional crisis. During the Easter recess, officials from the two administrations were engaged in intensive talks to come up with a form of words to a new Clause 11 amendment that is acceptable to both sides. The Herald has been told by Whitehall sources that UK ministers and officials felt they were on the verge of an agreement on Friday, with Michael Russell, the Scottish Government's Brexit minister, apparently content with those further reassurances on the bill given by senior UK ministers. As hopes of a breakthrough were raised, there was even talk of calling a snap intergovernmental joint ministerial committee in London for today to push the deal through. Yet the optimism appears to have dissipated somewhat over the weekend as the Scottish Government mulled over the detail. One UK government source said having received positive signals at the end of last week, it appeared the First Minister had come to a different conclusion, that more work needed to be done. An SNP insider close to the talks said he did not recognise Whitehall's interpretation of events, but suggested a breakthrough might yet be possible. He said, ''We're not there yet and don't expect to be there in the next few days.'' Nothing is agreed until all is agreed. UK ministers believe they have shown flexibility in the negotiations and that while a deal is close, work is needed on the detail. But Whitehall believes Ms Sturgeon and her colleagues agreeing to a deal or not will come down to a political choice. Do they want to do a deal that works for everyone or use Brexit to further their independence cause? Regardless of whether or not an agreement is reached in the next few hours, the Scottish Secretary, David Mundell, will table a new amendment to Clause 11 of the Bill by tomorrow. Parliamentary protocol means the House of Lords must be given seven days' notice before the amendment is debated, which is set for Wednesday, May second, the, the fifth of six days at report stage. The Scottish and Welsh governments believe the bill as it stands is a naked power grab by Whitehall. Scottish Conservatives have also sought reassurance the devolved settlement will be protected. The FM believes that on Brexit all 100 plus powers and responsibilities held by Brussels should transfer automatically to Holyrood but the Prime Minister wants 24 of them to be put on hold temporarily for frameworks to be agreed.
0: Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper, and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland on Thursday, the 26th of April 2018. Politics section. SNP releases email contacts with Cambridge Analytica. This article by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon. The SNP initiated contact with the data firm Cambridge Analytica and agreed to speak to them over the summer of 2016, despite claiming it dismissed them as cowboys. After a week of pressure over its dealings with the company, the SNP released what it has said were all its emails with CA in an attempt to draw the line under the issue. Westminster leader Ian Blackford called on other parties to be equally transparent about their contact with CA, which is linked to a privacy breach affecting 87 million Facebook users. However, the emails undermined some of the SNP's previous claims on the matter. They confirmed CA aggressively wooed the SNP and were largely ignored after a sole face-to-face meeting in London on the 18th of February 2016. But they also showed the relationship began after Chris Jones, the SNP's head of information systems, contacted CA the previous week. At the time, CA were known to be working with the Leave campaign in the EU referendum. In an email titled Making Contact on February 7th, Mr Jones said I lead the voter identification and targeting strategy for the SNP and I'm keen to have a chat. After the SNP's contact with CA was revealed at a Westminster committee last week, the party said a single external consultant had met the firm on its behalf. But the emails show Mr Jones and SNP lawyer Scott Martin were also due to meet CA in London, but in the end only consultant Kirk J Torrance attended. Mr Jones blamed a major network outage for stopping him making the trip. CA sent the SNP a non-disclosure agreement before the meeting in the name of SCL Elections, and later explained CA was a US operating affiliate of SCL Group. Mr Blackford said the SNP refused to sign it. After the meeting, the SNP blanked three follow-up emails from CA, but Mr Jones spoke to the firm by telephone on the 30th of March 2016. SCL Operations Executive Livia Krasandova emailed him the next day, thanking him for taking my call and discussing our potential cooperation in summer 2016. It was my pleasure to hear that you're still interested in working with SCL Group and Cambridge Analytica. She said talks had been postponed and are due to be reopened again after the Holyrood election and EU referendum. We have agreed to reconnect in May and then again in June, she wrote. However, a follow-up CA email on May 26th appears to have been the last correspondence. Mr Blackford said the SNP had written to the UK Information Commissioner about the links between CA and SCL and provided her with all the documents. He said, To confirm again, the SNP has never worked with Cambridge Analytica, used any of its services or paid them a single penny. It's time for other parties to face scrutiny over Cambridge Analytica's continuing assertion to have spoken with representatives of every major UK political party. I have previously set out a number of links between the Tories and Cambridge Analytica that no one has yet answered. The PM has failed to say why Aggregate IQ bosses were photographed on Downing Street. The focus now turns to unearthing the plethora of Tory ties to Cambridge Analytica, SCL elections and Aggregate IQ. This article is by Scottish political editor Tom Gordon.
1: Outsourcing giant capita... Asks investors for £701 million after losses mount, but won't be compared with Carillion. An article by Kevin Scott, business correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday, the 24th of April 2018. Capita is to raise £701 million in a rights issue after revealing a £513 million pre-tax loss. But Chief Executive John Lewis said he was frustrated at comparisons with collapsed outsourcing giant Carillion. Information Technology Specialist, Capita, which employs about 3,500 staff in Scotland, is also looking at making £175 million annual cost savings by the end of 2020 and £300 million from disposals. The rights issue comes as the group embarks on a new strategy which will reduce costs by delivering enhanced performance through increased simplification, efficiency, standardisation and focus. The losses for 2017 came after the group was hit with £850 million in one-off costs driven by the write-down Of the value of previous acquisitions. Losses widened from 90 million last year. Revenue was down 4.3% to £4.2 billion. The new strategy will see greater discipline in how it operates and would ultimately simplify and strengthen the group. Revealing the rights issue, the company's new management team was highly critical of the recent strategy of the group, saying it has become too complex. It has expanded beyond its core skills and failed to keep pace with a rapidly changing marketplace, said the directors. It has lacked a clear medium and long-term strategy, instead taking short-term decisions to pursue near-term growth and in-year profitability at the expense of planning for long-term sustainability. Mr Lewis said the rights issue was a key component of the new strategy and will give capita a stronger capital base. We need to simplify capita by focusing on growth markets and to improve our cost competitiveness, he said. We need to strengthen capita and plan to invest up to £500 million in our infrastructure, technology and people over the next three years. There is a lot to do, but I am confident that the plan is clear and prudent. Capital will become more predictable, have stronger operational discipline, and consistently delight its clients. However, speaking to the press association, he questioned any comparison with Carillion, which collapsed in January with up to £1.5 billion in debt. I get frustrated with that comparison. We are a completely different business, he said. We have £1 billion in liquidity, strong cash flow and a new strategy with investor support. We are not in PFI contracts and have nothing like the risk profile. Two weeks after Carillion collapsed, Capita issued a profit warning on the back of contract attrition and cost increases. Shares in the company have been on the slide since last summer, before dropping 54% after January's profit warning. The price recovered slightly yesterday, climbing 13.1% to close at 1808 p. In line with its drive for simplification, Capita has reorganised its divisional structure around five markets, software, human resources, customer management, government services and IT services. It has also introduced a specialist services division. The group continues to expect underlying pre-tax profits of between £270 million and £300 million for the 2018 year. Among Capita's major contracts is collecting the licence fee on behalf of the BBC, running control room and dispatch for the emergency services and proving information technology IT services for the police and justice departments. In Scotland, Capita set up the Scottish Wide Area Network, SWAN, to establish a single, shared and common IT infrastructure across Scotland's public sector. Capita has approximately 6,000 sites connected and is currently working to reach 7,500 sites, including in remote areas.
0: The Herald Scotland. On the 25th of April 2018, Business HQ. Santander cites Carillion collapse as UK profits tumble. This article by Deputy Business Editor Scott Wright. The UK business of Santander has seen profits tumble by 21% in the first quarter after being caught in the slipstream of the collapse of outsourcing giant Carillion earlier this year. The Spanish bank's exposure to the defunct services giant, as well as a further charge relating to another corporate customer reported to be InterServe, saw it book exceptional costs of £60 million for the three months ending March the 31st. It sent profits for the quarter down to £414 million, compared with £525 million in the first quarter of 2015. The increased charges came as the bank said it faced competitive pressures in the UK markets, as well as continuing uncertainty arising from Brexit. It warned that it would fail to meet its target for 4.7 million loyal retail customers this year, with current numbers standing at 4 million, as it struggled to attract savings deposits. Rates on a number of its savings products have not been increased since the rate hike last November, while its everyday and instant deposit accounts remain below the 0.5% base rate. Chief Executive Nathan Bostock said... Our first quarter results have been impacted by ongoing competitive pressures in the UK. Cost discipline remains an area of particular focus for management, with targeted actions expected to reduce the cost run rate over the year and deliver operational efficiencies, he added. The Carillion charge comes after Santander's 2017 UK profits fell by 5%, dragged lower by £203 million of impairment charges. These were largely made up of loans to Carillion, which went bad. The bank said net interest income was down 4% to £906 million from £940 million in the first quarter of last year as it cited pressure on new mortgage margins. However, it said this was offset by string lending volumes. The bank grew its mortgage book by £1.9 billion to £156.8 billion from the fourth quarter of 2017 with gross lending standing at £7.6 billion in the first quarter. Overall, customer loans edged up to £201.5 billion, up from £200.2 billion. However, savings deposits fell £700 million to £60.1 billion. And it reported that net interest income and banking net interest margin was 1.83% for the period, in line with the fourth quarter of 2017. It added 180,000 new digital customers over the period, up 10% year on year. The wider Santander Group posted a 10% rise in net profit to €2.05 billion for the first quarter, which was higher than expected. This article was by Deputy Business Editor Scott Wright. This is the end of Part 1. After a short break, we'll be coming back in Part 2 with more great articles from the Evening Times. This is a message from the NFB UK, the National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom. What is NFBUK? The National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom, NFBUK, is a self-help organization of blind, partially sighted and deaf-blind people helping each other to help ourselves. It's an independent, non-political charity that campaigns for greater rights, citizenship and independent living. How does NFBUK work? We have a network of branches around the country where members and supporters can meet locally. The branches keep our members in touch with their local community and represent their views to local and national authorities and society in general. We provide information for our members in braille, large print, audio and electronic formats. We work with local and national organisations to improve the quality of life for all blind, partially sighted, deafblind people and those whose sight impairment is part of multi-disability. NFB UK campaigns to defend essential benefits and social care services, and seeks wider provision of these services and equipment to help us lead independent lives. We have local branches around the country, and are aiming to open new branches in more areas. What are the benefits of joining NFB UK? You meet other blind, partially sighted and deafblind people with an interest in peer support, campaigning and making a difference. Members decide and shape which issues and campaigns to focus on, and you decide how you want to work on campaigns. It's free to join this year. You will benefit from our special offer of one year's free membership. You can receive regular updates and share information through Newsletter, E-Group and our audio magazine for members. Founded in 1947, we have played a leading role in articles for the blind postal concessions, the retention of different banknote sizes according to denomination and tactile street paving. Current Issues We are currently active in issues around shared spaces and the built environment, disabled students' allowance, social care and rehabilitation, and the NHS and accessible information standards. Join us. If you are blind, partially sighted, or deafblind, become a full member. We welcome sighted people to join as associate members. Any donation you can make will assist us to further our campaigning. For more information, visit www.nfbuk.org. Contact us via post NFB UK Sir John Wilson House, two one five Kirkgate, Wakefield, West Yorkshire, WF one one JG, that's Whiskey Foxtrot one one Juliet Golf. Telephone us zero one nine two four two nine one three one three or email admin at NFB Also on Twitter and Facebook at NFB UK. Now, back to the main programme.
2: This is part two. Coming up. Arts news. Expo Fund opens to GI. Vani Prize last call. Scottish Ballet Tour. This article by Phil Miller.
4: Rare cash of art by William McTaggart to go on sale this summer. Chris Deeran, Drastic steps bring to mind the values of mercy and care.
0: Mark Meechin Nazi pug case. muddies waters of free speech.
4: Robert McNeil, Will the acquisitive among us ever be brought to book?
3: Brian Beacom. If Gaelic is dying,
4: does it deserve a financial kiss of life? Celtic Captain Scott Brown. Hibs are the second best team in Scotland. Stuart Fisher.
0: Scottish football clubs will always be draft dodgers.
4: Football fans invited on exclusive tour of Murrayfield.
2: This article from the Herald on Friday the 20th of April 2018. Arts. Arts news. Expo Fund Opens to GI McIlwani Prize Last Call Scottish Ballet Tour This article by Phil Miller The Expo Fund for Scotland's Festivals is to be opened to allow Glasgow's Visual Arts Festival. Glasgow International GI, which opens in the city this week, will be able to apply for Scottish Government's Festivals Expo funding for the first time in 2019-20, G.I. will be eligible to apply for funding to support the 2020 edition of the festival for the first time. The Expo Fund was also recently opened to Celtic Connections. It was initially established to fund Edinburgh festivals. Richard Parry, Director, Glasgow International said, In only a little over a decade, G.I. has firmly established itself as one of the key dates in the global visual arts calendar. This year we have upwards of 270 artists taking part from over 30 countries, but with the majority living in the city itself demonstrating the strength of that scene. www.glasgowinternational.org A last call for entries is being made by Scotland's Leading Crime Writing Award. The McIlvanney Prize for Scottish Crime Book of the Year will be awarded at the Bloody Scotland Festival on September 21st. Eligible books must have been first published in the UK between the 1st of August 2017 and the 31st of July 2018 and written by a writer who is born in Scotland or lives in Scotland or set in Scotland. Novels, collections of short stories and non-fiction crime titles are eligible for submission. This year the judges are Susan Calman, Alison Flood and Craig Sisterson who is chair. Bloody Scotland is Scotland's international crime writing festival set up by a group of Scottish crime writers, Alex Gray and Lynn Anderson, later joined by Gordon Brown and Craig Robertson in 2012. This year it will take place from the 21st till the 23rd of September this year. www.bloodyscotland.com Scottish Ballet is about to embark on a tour of the Highlands and Islands. Following the Highlands and Islands tour of Matthew Bourne's Highland Fling, the company travelled to South Korea, Hong Kong and Macau for a tour of Hansel and Gretel. The Highland Fling tour dates include shows at Clickamon Main Hall in Lerrick, the Picacoy Centre in Kirkwall, the Atlantis Leisure Centre in Oban and the Lewis Sports Centre Stornoway. www.scottishballet.co.uk This article by Phil Miller.
4: This article is from the Herald on the 24th of April 2018, Arts and Entertainment section. Rare Cash of Art by William McTaggart to go on sale this summer by Phil Miller. Art collectors will have the chance this summer to buy works by one of Scotland's finest painters, William McTaggart. In June, an auction house in Derbyshire. Are selling a series of works by MacTaggart in what they are calling an extremely rare opportunity. The works of art, the auctioneer said, are being sold by descendants of the MacTaggart family. MacTaggart, from the village of Arros near Campbelltown, was known for his landscapes, seascapes, and died in 1910. The pictures coming up in Hansen's summer fine art auction which at present have not detailed prices, include a self-portrait of the artist as a young man, painted in around 1857 at the age of 22. Other works in the sale include a study of a mother holding a child called Collar Zero Zero and another of Two Young Sisters. There is also work with no figures titled House in Wood. Adrian Rathbone, Associate Director at the auctioneers, added... One of the most important works is Golf Caddies at Carnoustie. Painted circa 1896 to 1899, the composition and handling of the brushstrokes clearly show his debt to Impressionism. The golfing subject will clearly gain additional admiration too. Aside from the oil paintings, there are also studies in watercolour and pastel, some being MacTaggart's sketchbooks, and extracted pages from his sketchbooks. There is even his very own walking cane. This is an extremely rare opportunity for keen collectors of Scottish works of art. He added, "Mactaggart is universally celebrated as one of the great painters of landscapes and is known as the Scottish Impressionist. There is a loyal and strong following for Scottish art and artists and Mactaggart is certainly at the top of that shopping list. His work can be found in famous world exhibition venues, such as the Scottish National Galleries and the Tate. I envisage interest from private collectors, dealers and institutions, not just in Scotland, but from the worldwide art market. The son of a crofter, MacTaggart, was 16 when he moved to Edinburgh and studied at the Trustees Academy. He won several prizes as a student and exhibited his work in the Royal Scottish Academy, becoming a full member of the Academy in 1870. He adopted the impressionist practice of painting out of doors and became known for his bold brushwork. The sale will take place on the 30th of June. From the Arts and Entertainment section, Rare Cash of Art by William McTaggart to go on sale this summer by Phil Miller.
0: Here at Q and Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at com.
4: This article is from the Herald on the 24th of April 2018. Opinion section. Chris Deeren, drastic steps bring to mind the values of mercy and care by Chris Deeren. Even in daylight, even under the spring sunshine with the flowers sprouting around, the steps have a sort of doomy gothic foreboding about them. They are vertiginously steep, dank and undrying. The kind of cobweb passageway that might at its higher end deliver you to the creaking door of a vampire's castle and at its lower into the bowels of a crypt, where one imagines it soon becomes clear that not all the coffin lids are screwed on tight. We sterling dwellers, we sons and daughters of the rock, learn early to give the Dumbarton road steps a wide berth. As you herd south out of the city centre, past the Grand Carnegie Funded Library, and the outer reaches of the ancient defensive walls, you do well to follow the looping, gently sloping road towards the Halbert Halls, rather than attempt the teasingly direct route offered by the steps. I'd forgotten all this as I said goodbye to my oldest dearest friends a few Saturday ago, the policeman, the IT guy, the archaeologist, the civil servant, and the one whose job none of us have ever really understood. We don't see each other very often and had passed the evening swapping memories of the teenage humiliations and where are they now updates. Warmed by beer and cheer, we agreed, as such friends always do, that we wouldn't leave it so long next time and went our separate ways. As I ploughed homewards in jolly reverie, the steps suddenly loomed. The self-preservation instinct deserted me and I launched myself into their dark, glistening maw. A foot that should have alighted on old firm stone found only thin air. I'm sure I heard our demonic cackle. I came round quite quickly, I think. I made it to the bottom using the technique known to elite athletes as arse over tit. Statues of Rob Roy and Robert Burns looked down on this newly fallen Scottish hero who was flat on his back and in the unheroic condition of being unable to move. A pair of worried faces loomed into view. Are you all right, pal? You took a real header there. I can't move anything. Should we call an ambulance? Aye, probably. The damage was on an impressive scale. From the basement up. Bruised foot, sprained ankle, skinned knees, thigh strain, badly bruised hip and back, broken right arm, grazed cheek, black eye, split head. I've spent the past week or so in bed, either at home or in hospital. All visible skin is red, yellow or purple. I've had an operation to insert plates and screws into my arm to reconnect my snapped humerus. I've been kept on a steady diet of morphine and dihydrocodine. Not all bad, then. In every crisis, an opportunity. This has been a chance to learn about and better understand a world that sits hazily beside our own and which is a permanent home for many of our fellow citizens. As I have discovered, the gap between firm and infirm, even for a normally healthy middle-class male with all his attendant privileges, is not that wide. A few foolish or unlucky seconds can transfer you from one side of the line to the other with profound consequences. For example, I have been unable to wash without help from my wife. Going to the toilet has been a struggle. I have been unable to dress or feed myself stairs have been beyond me i have been totally reliant on others for transport when it's been needed trying to sleep at the required angle has not been conducive to actually getting any rest those moments in the hospital bed when you need the loo or have become physically uncomfortable but are reluctant to bother the nurses again are upsetting being unable to hug your kids is distressing too But there is also the sudden awareness of the safety net that surrounds each of us, the presence of which we don't often have to cause to notice in the good times. There's the kindness of strangers. The couple who, on what may have been a rare Saturday night, found me at the bottom of the steps, called the emergency services and then kept me talking and comfortable until they arrived. There are the first responders, efficiently but empathetic, empathetically dealing with a frightened and confused victim. There are the nurses and porters and radiologists and anaesthetists and surgeon, whom to an individual were, ge- were gentle, good-humoured and patient as, to quote one of them, they put Humpty together again i remember especially the nurse who was about to finish her shift when my cannula slipped out causing blood to spray freely around the room for some minutes she stayed to clean up what looked like a scene from a slasher flick treating me with a wonderful mix of dry humour and exasperation then there is of course the immediate and selfless availability of unwillingness of family members and friends to do whatever's needed In these moments, the love that's daily taken for granted glows brightly and you properly understand you are not alone. As someone who spends his days in the public and political sphere, my usual environment couldn't be further removed from all this. It is a hard, cold, zero-sum place where no quarter is given, where hatred runs like water and where people and their feelings take second place to tribal allegiance and victory. It is a world that has become increasingly toxified in recent years, whether the debate has been about austerity or immigration or military intervention or by the slugfests over Brexit and Scottish independence. In my confinement, I have occasionally logged into social media and then immediately come back out again. So brutal and sneering and bullying have I found the content. It feels like we have come to detest one another. My unexpected exposure to the compassion of others has been humbling. The evidence that grace is all around inspiring. I feel like I want to stay in that better place for as long as I can. But the bigger challenge is surely to drag our diseased public sphere towards those golden values of mercy and care. There must be a way to put Humpty together again. Opinion section, Chris Deren Drastic steps bring to mind the values of mercy and care, by Chris Deering.
0: The Herald Scotland, on Wednesday, the twenty-fifth of April, twenty eighteen, opinion section. Mark Meachin Nazi pug case muddies waters of free speech. This article by Angela Haggerty. Am I offended by some random guy in Copebridge teaching his dog to do Nazi salutes? Not really. It's idiotic, but he wouldn't give it much more status than that. Regardless, Mark Meachin was slapped with an eight hundred pound fine this week after training his dog to do just that in response to the phrases gas the Jews and Zag Heil and posting a video of it on YouTube. He used the former phrase no less than twenty three times in just a few minutes. Meachin's defence was that it was all just a bit of a joke, and that he trained his girlfriend's dog to do something outrageously offensive to wind her up. But the courts didn't find that so funny. The case thrusts Scotland into the centre of a freedom of speech debate. Comedians Ricky Gervais and David Baddiel came to Meachin's defence, as well as former English Defence League leader Tommy Robinson. I'm also leaning more favourably towards the free speech side in this case, though I've changed my mind on this more times than Meachin's dog gave its Nazi salute. It's a tricky one, because context is everything. In 2018, we have the rise of the far right on the shores of both Europe and America, and we have a social network ecosystem online that cannot get to grips with any of it. The law simply hasn't caught up with technology. It appears to have little clue how to. Just look at the spectacle of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg in front of the US Senate earlier this month asking questions about how it uses data and advertising. It was like a 12-year-old trying to show his granddad how to set up an email address at times. And this is where the crux of the problem lies for me. Decades ago, the main medium for controversial comedy would have been television, radio, cinema and newspapers where there's an editorial and creative process behind decisions to publish any kind of offensive content. Senior editorial staff are trained on the legal side. They understand the need to balance freedom of speech with responsibility. They take their audiences into account. They consider who might be watching and when. Sometimes they get things right, sometimes they get things wrong. And when it's the latter, you can be sure there'll be a thorough editorial post-mortem examining why. But none of this applies to YouTube. Social media is getting a bad rap in general these days. If it's not scandals about our data being grabbed for god knows what purpose on Facebook, it's yet another story about abuse on Twitter or sexting between teens on Snapchat going horribly wrong. But there's a very particular problem on YouTube that needs to be taken into account with the Meachin case. YouTube has become a favourite haunt of the far right, globally. It's worryingly difficult to do a YouTube search for anything political and not find oneself with bonkers conspiracy theory videos showing up as suggested viewing. The comment sections below said videos contain some of the most toxic, poisonous material you're ever likely to see, and the abuse directed at women, people of colour and minorities is particularly vicious. If networks like Facebook and Twitter have elbowed their way into becoming the ultimate digital newspaper, YouTube acts like a news agency. It's common to see average Joe members of the public sharing videos containing far-right propaganda on their profiles. The far-rights capitalised wonderfully on the free speech issue. It's commandeered much of the digital space by bullying others, by forcibly dampening the speech of opponents, while simultaneously claiming that governments are preventing them from speaking. And this is why context matters. Meechan used a platform known for its appeal to extremists to post a joke that caused great offence to the Jewish community. Even if I'm prepared to accept it was all just a stupid stunt that in no way reflects Meechin's views, I can't shake off the context. But additionally, we wouldn't have Tommy Robinson showing up in Scotland to squeeze publicity from the far right out of this case if the law hadn't breezed in and made such a fuss. There are plenty of far right problems to tackle. A joke in bad taste was probably not the most helpful target in the long run. So, no, I'm not offended by Meechin, and I have valid concerns about the state clamping down on controversial comedy. If satire starts getting hauled into the courts next, for example, I'm leaving the country, but I'm not left without worries. Other parts of the world which greatly value personal freedoms like the USA may look on in amusement at this stushy, but last year Americans elected Donald Trump as president after a campaign which utilised social media in the darkest way we've ever seen in this early stage of the new world. The truth is that we need to find a new balance between freedom and responsibility fit for the digital age. The Meachin case is simply symptomatic of the problem society is facing and, if anything, has only further muddied the waters. This article was by Angela Haggerty. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for cue and review. Now, back to the main programme.
4: This article is from the Herald on the 24th of April 2018. Opinion section. Robert McNeil, Will the acquisitive among us ever be brought to book? By Robert McNeill, columnist. A shocked statistic made me spit my honey nut loops across the room and onto the parrot when I read it in my trusty Herald this morning, as I write. It was to the extent that an estimated 200,000 people in Scotland could be suffering from hoarding disorder. Somebody else said it might even be double that, which a quick headcount out the window tells me means nearly everybody. Though hoarding is undoubtedly a problem, I'm taking that figure with a vat of salt, the same as I do with local government finances and weekly alcohol limits. All the same, hoarding is now taken so seriously that it'll be the subject of an international conference later this year at a venue in Edinburgh, that will be cluttered up by experts. Of course, hoarding can be a serious matter. Some individuals have collected so much junk that they can't get to the toilet or the kitchen. Why not be like me and combine them into one? In their own homes. No one has been clear on the outcome of that. One pictures a sufferer sitting there and thinking, hello, I feel a need to micturate. Oh, hang on, I forget, I cannot get through to the kludgy. I shall just have to sit here till I burst, I guess. I say, sufferer, as getting an international conference in your name confers on holders the exalted status of having a condition, which then becomes the basis for a sick note. I am sorry, but I cannot come into work today as my house is covered in stuff. Stuff and nonsense, of course, but the condition is discussed in socio-psychotic language about impaired social and economic functioning, for which I guess a case might be made if the research grant is large enough. It's also theorised that sufferers might be prone to emotional oversensitivity. If that is true, then surely some form of corporal punishment is called for. Of course, most of us hoard to some degree. I'm right emotionally sensitive, Ken, and consequently, I'm probably more prone to hoarding than most. I've bought hundreds of books on decluttering, that's them over there blocking the door to the toilet, but still cannot summon the courage to throw out the extraneous junk, mainly books indeed, that I've accumulated. In the course of under-researching this treatise, I've learned that book hoarding is called bibliomania. This includes having multiple copies of the same book which makes my three editions of The Lord of the Rings and indeed three of The Hobbit enough to have me diagnosed by the men in white coats. I cannot help it. A working-class lad, I dreamed of becoming ordinarily middle-class which status was exemplified in nothing better than book-lined walls. All the reasonable affuncular figures in fiction had such a backdrop. Even now, when my social status is lower than when I started out, and I must acknowledge that I failed to better myself, I fear to demolish that aspect of my home, though it be largely made up of cheap paperbacks in Ikea Billy bookcases. To be fair, I have started to psych myself up for a chucking out, and have selected an estimated two books that will go when I sell the house. To that end, five weeks ago, I brought five crates of video down from the attic. They're still blocking the way into the kitchen. It's partly because they're so difficult to get rid of. You can dump crates of books on sleeping vagrants, but nobody wants videos these days. You can't even recycle them as there's something environmentally toxic in the tape. Nobody knows what you're supposed to do with them. Serious hoarders tend not to collect materials as worthy as books and videos right enough. They hang on to junk mail, catalogues, old culinary equipment, and actual detritus such as takeaway and actual detritus such as takeaway cartons. Old clothes are also listed, though I guess many of us are guilty of that to some degree. Suits I never get a chance to wear now, old club t shirts. Again, we all hang on to things that might come in handy one day and that, after many years of being constantly seen, can never be found when you need them. However, I'm sure we'd all draw the line at broken potato peelers and odiferous curry cartons. Perhaps the fact that putting things in the bin is so complicated nowadays has some bearing on the matter. Perhaps it's to do with our acquisitive society and maybe even not wanting to throw away a part of oneself. Enough excuses already. October's conferences in Edinburgh will, I trust, call on the state to crack down hard on such disgraceful behaviour, except where it involves books and videos. Opinion section Robert McNeil Will the Acquisitive Among Us Ever Be Brought to Book By Robert McNeil Columnist
3: This article from the Held Scotland News On the 26th of April 2018. Opinion. Brian Beacom. If Gaelic is dying, does it deserve a financial kiss of life? This article by senior features writer Brian Beacom. dotilg shindirich 2.5 million shios and stank. Now you will understand the last word of the translation, but here's the full sentence. Have we just thrown 2.5 million down the stank? The question arises because the Scottish Government has backed a project to create a landmark Gaelic dictionary and we, the unknowing, unconsulted taxpayer, will fund it. But this plan will throw up as many critical comments as there are Eskimo words for snow. The argument for the new dictionary is that it aims to safeguard the future of the language. Now I could well aim to write the Definitive Scots novel, give Andy Murray a tight five-setter and set up a date with Emily Blunt, but you can be fairly sure it ain't going to happen. The Scots Gaelic is dying according to Bortna Gaelic, the government's Gaelic promotional body. It points out intergenerational transmission has all but ended and asks for substantially increased state funding and strengthened legislation, but while creating a listing of the Gaelic, from its earliest written form to for the present day, provide the kiss of life. The simple truth is that most Scots don't give a monkade, monkeys, about Gaelic. Yes, there are children learning the language right now in schools in Glasgow, and a third in Govan is planned for next year. It is also true it costs the taxpayer the same to send a child to a Gaelic school in Glasgow as any other. However, these schools have most likely emerged as the insistence of middle-class parents with romantic notions of cultural heritage and the tune of the Sky Boat song floating wondrously in the back of their mind. And as sure as Angus Og had a best friend called Lackey, there will be debates about money spent on surrounding schools, as was the case recently with the Gaelic school of Portree and Skye. The reality is for most Scots the language of the Hebrides is harder to learn than trigonometry and almost unpronounceable once described by a comedy writer as sounding like someone gargling with iron brew. It's next to useless in an international context. It's not like Spanish which can can take you to South America for a year and help you buy bus tickets, pay for youth hostels, or even chat to the local ladies about the meaning of life, mandarin or Russian, would be more useful in the modern world. The other problem for the Gaelic language in Scotland is we seem to get along fairly well with English. We've taken English and coloured it, derived from it and distorted it delightfully. Without surrendering the essence of what makes us Scottish, we've made it our own, and as a result we have Kirsty Wark English, Transporting English and Alistair Grey English. The Gaelic lobby will argue that not to promote the language is to kill Scotch culture, but what is Scotch culture? There are more Polish speakers in Scotland. Is there as much of a case for Balangal Polish schools? Or Punjabi? Or Doric? The Gaelic lobby is powerful. As I'm writing, I can hear keyword keys clattering out the word and it would no doubt complain that not fund Gaelic development is to attack a racial minority, to deny fundamental rights. They will argue belligerism advantages the young mind and this is certainly unarguable. The learning of a second language improves practice and understanding of the first. They will argue if you don't provide the platforms the language will die out. But does the Gaelic language need £20 million? Backed BBC Alipa, which seems depend upon showing football matches to sustain an audience. Do we need to have a Gaelic signpost at Gilmore Street in Paisley? Yes, it's nice for tourists to think they've arrived in Brigadoon, but it all smacks of cultural fabric softener aimed at keeping the Gaelic supporters as sweet as Tablet. But perhaps we should let social Darwinism decide what happens to Gaelic, and if it has to go the way with Latin as a spoken language, so be it. Golden will argue that Welsh is spoken in a third of schools, but it already had a wide support base, as in the case of Erie, and debates over the development of both languages raise on, which claims of cultural Nazism in Wales and Sinn Féin and the DUP making loud threatening noises across the debating tables in Northern Ireland. Do we need that sort of division in Scotland, where there are less than 58,000 Gaelic speakers? Yes, we can't be imperialistic, but investment should be proportionate, so why prioritise Gaelic? Why not let Gaelic speakers teach their children, pay for their own to learn the language, and set up clubs and culture centres and spread the word? The Scottish Government likes referendums, so what about this for an idea? Ask the public if they prefer the £2.5 million should be spent on a big book of Gallic words or on 5,000 MRS scans to detect early cancers. A final thought. Dr. Johnson's dictionary of the English language was written at a cost of 1,500 guineas with an equivalent of £220,000 today. Couldn't board the Gallic? Find young Gallic Dr. Johnston there and let them collect the words. This article by Senior Features writer Brian Beacom.
4: This article is from the Herald on the twenty fourth of april twenty eighteen. Sports section. Celtic Captain Scott Brown. Hibs are the second best team in Scotland by Alison McConnell. There was more than just a little mischief at play when Scott Brown, the Celtic captain, maintained that the performances of Hibs this season have confirmed their status in his mind as the second-best team in the country. On paper, Neil Lennon's side are currently three points off the pace of Rangers and Aberdeen with four games still to play, including a mouth-watering final game of the season at Easter Road between Hibbs and Rangers. But it is the manner in which Hibs have done battle with Celtic this term where Brown believes they have proved their credentials. Two draws and a win against Celtic means that Lennon has taken seven points from the Parkhead outfit this term, an achievement that outstrips anything any other team has done against the champions elect. And asked if Rangers are the second best team in the league, Brown was unambiguous with his response. No. Hibsar, he stated firmly. They came up from the Championship and have shown everyone how good they can be. They've got a top quality manager, a good young team. If they can keep that together, who knows what they can do. They definitely have given us our toughest games of this season. They play good football, but they're up for the battle. The two strikers are playing really well together. They understand how each other play. So for lone strikers coming in to play so well together, scoring so many goals, it's great for them. If Brown's comments were designed to get under the skin of Rangers ahead of Saturday's title clincher at Celtic Park, it seems ultimately unnecessary. The Parkhead side have acted as an undermining earworm for Rangers since the arrival of Brendan Rodgers at Celtic. The 45-year-old is... Unbeaten in all ten experiences of this fixture and given the meekness with which Rangers relinquished the William Hill Scottish Cup semi-final at Hampden just over a week ago, there will be few who fancy the Ibrox's side chances of reigning on Celtic's coronation. Brown has been pivotal to that dominance over Rangers, particularly this season. The midfielder collected three personal accolades, Player of the Year, Players' Player of the Year and a special recognition award on Sunday evening as Celtic hosted their own awards dinner in a city centre hotel and it would appear to be a portent of what is to come as further ceremonies await before the end of the campaign. Whatever personal gongs he takes home, however, will compare little to the experience of clinching the title at Celtic Park against Rangers, a fixture the authorities buck against. Celtic Folklore celebrates the 1979 May evening when ten men won the league, but that is the last time any Parkhead side clinched the title against their rivals, such as the scarcity of opportunity to do so. It, winning the league against Rangers, would be the icing on the cake to be perfectly honest, said Brown, especially for the fans. Everyone tried to stop it happening, but now we have a chance to do it. It happens so rarely, it does give us an incentive, especially after our disappointing result at the weekend. We really need to show how good we are after a poor performance. We need to make sure that, against Rangers, we just show how good we can be, especially in front of our own fans. In contrast to last term, Celtic have been far less fluent than they were in Roger's inaugural Invincibles campaign. Still though, there has been ease with which they have seen off any challenge from Rangers and the psychological effects of the 3-2 win in March at Ibrox seem to loom large over the semi-final at Hampden. Hibbs effectively served up a lesson in how to play against Celtic with their pressing and aggression against Rogers' side, with which the Parkhead side seemed to unable to counter on Saturday. But Brown was bullish in his insistence that few can live with Celtic when they hit their stride. It's always about Celtic, said Brown. If we turn up, we play. We reach our best. We beat Rangers. No problem. But we need to make sure we do the hard work over the next four or five days leading up to the game. I think Rangers will have a point to prove, especially with the semi-final result, the way they played and everything that has been happening since. They will want to come after us and try to put us under pressure, make us make mistakes. But we've got top quality players who can cope with the pressure and play through it. I always look forward to it. They are still going for second place as well. Hibs got a great result at the weekend, obviously, so it's all up for grabs now. Rangers played better with ten men against us. They kind of came after us and put a bit more pressure on us with ten than they did with eleven. I think they felt it might just as well give it a go there and then. I think every one of us turned up on the day at Hampden. That's from goalkeeper through to the front. We dominated as we knew we would. As subtle with word as he is with tackle. Sports section. Celtic captain Scott Brown. Hibs are second best team in
0: Scotland. By Alison McConnell. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free Daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the national newspaper, and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland on Thursday, the 26th of April 2018. Sports section Stuart Fisher. Scottish football clubs will always be draft Dodgers. This article by sports writer Stuart Fisher. Just imagine. With the first pick of the 2018 Scottish football draft, Cowden Beath selects Karimoko Dembele of St Ninian's High School, Kirkintilloch. The 15 year old, seated with his family in an antechamber of the SSE Hydro, flashes a smile and offers a thumbs up to the cameras. He then gets his picture taken with SFA Commissioner Ian Maxwell before declaring that the Blue Brazil were the only team he ever wanted to play for and that he's always been a big fan of stock car racing. It's almost that time again. Tonight, just after midnight, in Arlington, Texas, months of speculation and intrigue, a period which is commonly known as the lying season, will come to an end and the first round of the NFL Draft will be underway. The Cleveland Browns, more of a joke franchise than Cowdenbeath have ever been, are on the clock. For the uninitiated out there, it's worth issuing a little bit of background. The draft is the process whereby the top players on college scholarships across the US, some of them already polished media darlings, are neatly distributed to the 32 NFL franchises which want them. The worst team in last year's championships, i.e. winless Cleveland, are granted first pick, while last year's Super Bowl winners, the Philadelphia Eagles, go last. In practice, of course, things are far more complex than this, as franchises can trade away their picks like confetti, one ramification of which this year is that the Browns have both the number one and number four picks, plus three more in the second round, having also had last year's number one overall selection. In other words, they have a historic chance to give themselves relevance after years of lurking in the shadows. Or they could just make a mess of it again. Incidentally, there's more intrigue than ever this year, with the 2018 crop widely regarded as the kind of bumper harvest of quarterbacks not seen since 1983, when Dan Marino, John Elway and Jim Kelly all entered the league. This time the big four are Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen or Baker Mayfield, all of whom are regarded as surefire success stories in waiting. OK, so it has been known for players to outright refuse to be drafted to a particular club, ending up being traded elsewhere, but with a sliding unionised pay skill to fall back on, such stories are few and far between. Considering so many Scottish football talents fall off the grid between 17 and 21, it's understandable if there is a yearning for this kind of systematic conveyor belt where the best players progress seamlessly through to the professional ranks. Google any one of Darnold, Allen and co, and you can read pages and pages of the kind of thorough scouting and assessment dossiers which would put Jose Mourinho to shame. Perhaps that's why the SFA included a draft as part of their first draft of Project Brave. Okay, this was only a watered-down means of doling out short-term development loans, not anything to do with permanent ownership of players, but briefly, it seemed the prospect of Dembele being the centre of attention at Central Park might actually have been a goer. Let's just say that it didn't take long for that part of the plans to be quietly shelved because aside from the odd sports scholarships offered by the likes of the University of Stirling or EduSport Academy, the entire paradigm is different over here. In the USA, the youngest player on professional terms at an NFL club is 19. Here, the clubs themselves take ownership of players at the age of 10, in some instances schooling them too. Here, it's the clubs who do all the hard yards, the clubs who wield all the power. Why should they relinquish control of who they loan their players to? who's to stop them hoarding the talent themselves? It was a nice idea while it lasted, but in truth introducing a draft system for Scottish football deserved only to be left on the cutting room floor, alongside other great imponderables like the old firm playing in the Barclays Premier League. The incoming chief executive, however, has a job on when it comes to ensuring we get a less piecemeal and more centrally planned pathway for our best young players. Some will tell him the SFA are bloated and inefficient, but the clubs can't do it all by themselves. This article is by sports writer Stuart Fisher.
4: This article is from the Herald on the 24th of April 2018. Sports section. Football fans invited on exclusive tour of Murrayfield as venue bids for Scotland matches. By Alasdair Mackenzie, online sports editor. Twitter at AKS Scottish rugby are offering 100 football fans the chance to take an exclusive tour of Murrayfield as the stadium bids to become the new home of Scottish football. The SFA's lease of Hampden Park is set to expire and decision on the future venue of international matches is expected this summer. Murrayfield is bidding to host games from 2020 onwards and SFA supporters club members and season ticket holders have been invited to a tour of the country's largest stadium on Thursday the third of May. Scottish Rugby say that the tour will showcase the rich sporting history of BT Murrayfield and give football fans behind-the-scenes access. That includes visits to the trophy room, dressing room and press gallery. Scottish Rugby's Chief Operating Officer Dominic Mackay said, Rugby has a long tradition of hospitality and we are excited about giving fans of football a chance to see BT Murrayfield for themselves. We are very proud of BT Murrayfield and want to showcase both the great facilities we have and the rich history our sport enjoys. As Scotland's biggest stadium, we feel it has a role to play in the future of hosting both the national rugby and football teams, and this Open Day will give fans the chance to experience it first-hand. The 100 places will be filled on a first-come, first-served basis, and applications can be made on the Scottish Rugby website, with tours taking place at 4pm, 5pm and 6pm on the 3rd of May. Sports section. Football fans invited on exclusive tour of Murrayfield as venue bids for Scotland matches by Alastair Mackenzie, online sports editor. Twitter at AKS Mackenzie.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly Talking Newspaper Digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and, and the producer was J. Kidd. Q and Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC zero one eight zero one six. Our registered office is at eighteen Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G six four one QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at QRVU dot com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at zero one four one seven seven two three nine seven six.